0: Hello and welcome to the Mechanics Institute Review Podcast. My name is Lauren Miller and I was an editor for this year's anthology. Today we are joined by Aaron Deer, who wrote the story Tom Corridon, to discuss the editorial process. If you would like to pick up a copy of MIR15, then head to mironline.org forward slash anthology. Aaron Deer is a Greek-Irish writer. She has finally come to terms with not knowing the answer to the question, do you feel more Greek or Irish? Growing up in Athens sparked a love for theatre and storytelling. Having moved to Ireland after completing school, she studied theatre at the Conservatory of Music and Drama, DIT, in Dublin, and storytelling in pubs all across the country. She worked as an actor and producer in multiple Dublin theatre venues. Arundia completed her MA in Creative Writing at Birkbeck in 2018. Thank you for joining us today, Arundia. Thank you for having me. Arandia is now going to read the opening of her short story, Tom Corridon.
1: Trevor is blasting Thin Lizzy's version of whiskey in the jar it's grey and cold but not pissing down so I can have a fag out of sight in the laneway behind our houses and listen to Trevor's tunes he's the only one with the record player and good taste on our street Ma says his dad bought it because Mr Walsh works on the ships and feels guilty for being away all the time I think Trevor's lucky he gets all the good stuff without the hassle of having his old man around we only have the radio in our house and it's usually playing shite I'm wearing long trousers for the first time this year, so no more freezing legs, looking like a turkey's plucked arse. Mrs. Walsh made them for me. She's great with a needle and thread and helps Ma out whenever she can. I asked her to give them a bit of a bell bottom, to which she said, Absolutely not. I can hear her shouting at Trevor to turn the music down. Don't see why. He livens the place up. Older people always want a quiet house so they can hear themselves tink she's great and all but I don't think Mrs Walsh will be mulling over Finnegan's wake or anything without Trevor's music Cherryfield Road is the most miserable greyest fucking hole in Dublin I have to go and get Dad from the pub in a minute otherwise Ma says he'll stay there all night and not come home for his dinner like there'd be any harm in that I start sucking in one of those mints that burn your nose and throat to hide my cigarette mouth and I'm off Boyle's pub is dark and dingy. The soles of my shoes stick to the floor and announce my arrival to the patrons and the publican. Ah, look, it's Tom Corridon, coming to take his da home for his dinner, says Michael, a bulbicide, nosy little fecker who's friendly with da and hasn't a good thing to say about anyone. Da, Michael, I say, and take a seat at the bar next to them to begin my wait. "'Me boy told me the Father Flanagan is giving you extra work after class. "'Said you'd be learning ancient Greek. "'The brains in you,' says Michael. "'That only happened today, nosy bastard. "'He knows everything. "'They're only short passages, just trying to better myself. "'Much good it'll do when he's setting down pipes and unclogging toilets,' "'says Da, speaking for the first time since I came in the door. "'He can recite Greek to pass the time of day.' But the clients will think he's away with the fairies The two of them start laughing Fucking idiots Belittling everyone to make out the dead end They find themselves in as a choice Instead of a mistake With their dirty shirts And dirty necks And filthy nails Cunts I think to myself I'm trying to calculate When would be a good time to ask Dav If he's ready to go home If the pint is too full He'll tell me I'm rushing him When it's nearly empty, one of the men will quickly suggest another round. I have to interject, just when the liquid is in between the bottom of the glass and halfway to the middle. Are you nearly ready to go, da? I say. What's for dinner then? Says da. Roast beef, boiled vegetables and spuds, I say. Jesus, no rush to get back home then. A packet of cheese and onion crisps and two more pints there, Seamus says Da. Four pints later, we're on our way home. Everything is louder and feels electric. The ground underneath our feet seems noisier to step on than usual. I say nothing and hope he says nothing. Silence is good. After a few pints, God knows what road his mind will take. We get into the house and it's business as usual. I'm just warming the food, Frank. Joe heard your footsteps and told me to put it on, says Ma, smiling. Not ready yet, then. Don't mind me. I've just been working all day and have to be up at the crack of dawn tomorrow, Da says. The meat turns to rubber if you heat it for too long. I want it to be nice for you, says Ma, not quite meeting his eyes. Ah, sure fuck it, we'll wait. Joe, come here to your old man. You're always looking out for me, aren't you? What do you want to be when you grow up, says Da? Putting Joe on his lap. A plumber, like you. I'll sort people's houses out and then I'll have lunch at Bewley's and order tea with little cubes and sugar on the side, says Joe, delighted with all the attention he's suddenly getting. Silly boy, I don't have lunch at Bewley's every day. Do you know your brother is learning ancient Greek? Do you know what job that's good for? says Da. What job? says Joe, wide-eyed. None, says my father, and makes a sound like he's nearly choking himself, laughing. Actually, you can use it in university, if you're a professor. That's a good job to have, I say, looking at the floor. Listen to you. Actually, you sound like a fucking fairy. Are you going to be one of those Trinity College heads? The cream of Dublin. Thick and rich. Well, son, you're missing one of the criteria there. You're fucking thick, but you sure as hell ain't rich, he says and laughs at his own joke. Stupid fucker. Frank, he's only a boy. They're bound to be impressed by what they learn in school, says Ma. I just look down and wait for it to pass. Hopefully Ma will serve dinner soon and he'll fill that mouth of his that constantly needs to be doing something. Drinking, or eating, or talking shite. Jesus, are you making the food from scratch now? it up, woman, for fuck's sakes, Da says. Do you need any help, Ma? I say, watching my mother do her usual trick of making herself smaller and smaller. One day she'll make herself one with the wall and disappear. Is cooking another thing Father Flanagan has taught you? Maybe you can bring him over to the house sometime and he can turn our water into wine, he says. And belches, filling the front room with the smell of beer. Don't be getting any ideas that you'd be going to college. You'll finish school and then you'll help put bread on the table. You'll work. There'll be no stuff in your nose in a book. I feel my whole body heating up until even the backs of my ears are burning. Maybe I can get a better job. Maybe I don't have to have muck under my fingernails and a filthy stained collar. Any savage can fix a toilet, drink himself stupid, then come home and shout to his wife and children to make himself feel important. I blurt out. Time stops. My mother speaks. Don't upset your father, Tom. Tell him you didn't mean it, she says, and walks over to Da's chair. She puts her hand lightly on his shoulder, as if touching a wild animal she's afraid of. Frank, he's just under a lot of pressure at school. He's tired. Da shoves Joe off his knee and gets up, taking his belt out of its loops. His famous belt that always ends up joining his hands and his fists at the end of the night. Ma takes Joe in her arms and carries him upstairs. There's no point trying to get between me and Da. It never works. You little fucking bastard. I put food on the table and clothes on your back. Who are you to judge me? A fucking nobody. That's who you are. Fucking nobody, he says. He keeps repeating himself. The boring bastard. I get hit and shoved and punched. But I don't make a sound. The belt burns the skin on my back. His right fist thuds onto my jaw. And the pain spreads all the way to the other side of my face and the top of my head. The lashes of the bell get more and more frequent until I'm numb and they don't hurt anymore. I know there will come a point when it stops, like it always does. And then there will be a time in the future when it starts again, like it always does.
0: Thank you so much for that reading, Aaron Dia. Um, I had read a previous version of this story probably about a good year and a half before it came out in Mia um, because we were in the same workshop group uh, in our first time at Birkbeck. Um I was interested to know what feedback you got from that very early stage of the process with this story, if anything stayed with you throughout... Um, if any thoughts stayed with you throughout that time that also influenced getting the story ready to submit to Mir Fifteen.
1: Well... The feedback was quite negative for this story, like, you know, back when we were workshopping it for the first time. Um, And the story, is it wasn't set in Dublin. It was uh, set in rural Ireland. And uh, the feedback I got was that it was very Irish. Um, So I, you know, I, I, I basically I put it in a drawer Mm -hmm. and uh, didn't touch it again for for two years. And I don't know why, when I was... um, uh, in the in in the workshop with Jonathan Kemp like I I just thought of resurrecting it and you know um and with his feedback as well kind of like make you know making it a bit more edgy like setting it in Dublin and and I think like like having Thin Lizzy as well like in the beginning which by the way like I was listening to the entire time I was writing Mm -hmm. this um so I think it's the rhythm of it almost has influenced my writing of it um it it just helped kind of bring it closer to us, Mm -hmm. you know, as in, like, you know, contemporary people. um, And then set it in the 70s, which, I I mean, I I only have encyclopedic knowledge of, you know, I was a baby, like, in the 70s, so uh, obviously didn't uh, go around drinking and smoking fags Mm -hmm. in uh, corners. But, um, yeah, I think it made it, I, I think, like, making it more gritty. And I suppose just writing... In a, in a sense about a place that I knew mm-hmm. I've never lived in rural Ireland, I, I've lived in Athens or New York or London or Dublin so I've always been a city girl so you know, why was I mm-hmm. trying to
0: write about rural Ireland you know. Yeah, you wanted to keep it more to your yeah, own experiences exactly. yeah, yeah. and let that come through the writing rather than trying to create an idea of Ireland that you didn't necessarily um, experience firsthand. Yeah. do you think that might be what what the basis of the criticism of to are Irish? Where that maybe came from? Yeah, I think I think I was I think I perhaps I was writing. I mean, obviously, I've been to
1: rural Ireland. Yeah. I just haven't lived in rural Ireland. But but um, uh, but I, I I lived in Ireland for twelve years, so I I, I know the place quite well. Um, but it just it's just it's just a different feel, and you know, there's 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 nothing like just being realistic and writing things you know i, I know mm. that sounds
0: very the abc of writing mm-hmm. but um i think true. in terms of setting as well it can always be a bit dangerous about trying to tread mm. on um, yeah. in areas that you don't necessarily yeah you haven't experienced or yeah yeah but also what's interesting i and what i think is good about the story with like you said thin lizzie and the song that starts it mm. it automatically places that story in a time and and the way you write the area and the whole tone of the piece I felt like that's one of the key strengths is that you do really feel like you're in this place, like some writing it struggles to put the reader actually in the Mm. environment of the Mm protagonist or the narrator but this was great and this is written about the the laneway where he starts is the laneway
1: from like behind my grandmother's house in Dublin Mm -hmm. uh, where I used to go uh, when I was a kid like on holidays so I I remember that laneway like it's it's really vivid in my head because it's a it's a place that I was always told not to go down the laneway Do you know, so, like, I remember, like, skulking in, like, a little, you know, like, when I was five years old and kind of looking down. And then, like, I got, like, I remember I went, I went quite, like, in, uh, and, and then my mother, like, came and she was shouting at me, like, it mm-hmm. got me to come back. And I think... um I think I like I got put up in my room for about an hour, like yeah, you know, to, like naughty corner, like you know, yeah, um, for doing that. But but be, so because of that, I suppose this laneway
0: where it starts, it's just really vivid in my head. So I yeah. guess
1: that kind of carries through. Yeah, you know, definitely. You
0: know? Also, you're you're now like you've allowed yourself to like tread further into this laneway <laughs> through this character, yeah. which is really nice. Yeah. And is this the first time you've been published and your work has been professionally edited? Yes. Yes. And. Um, uh, which is amazing,
1: and I was very excited, and did jump up, up and down the house uh, when uh, when I was told I was going to be a mere fifteen. Um, it, it was very exciting to me. I mean, I can't even begin to tell you, like because I I had I had heard of other people getting published in this anthology, so to be included and to go through this process like seemed like it just I just it was something I wanted to live through, so. And I came to it very positively, like having worked on this for a really long time on my own. I thought like the idea of suddenly being part of a team mm-hmm. of people that want to make it the the best that it possibly can be you know make it all nice and shiny tighten it up and like get it ready to go out into the world I thought was a tremendously positive thing yeah um, and uh, I was delighted to know that I'd be working with you because we have been in university before yeah. together um, and uh, the legend that is Sue Tiley because I just <laughs> heard so many amazing things about her uh, and to just work with her and you know like she looked at the, the text for like a day and then you know Told, looked at the patterns of words mm-hmm. that I don't know. It's just like things she's maybe like a come that. out, come out to her, you know, and yeah. said, "Oh, you use a, you use these words like this, and you, you know, you have, uh, you, you repeat certain words like every few, li-, you know." And suddenly, I looked at the text and I thought, "How did I not see that?" Mm-hmm. And, but then you're blind to it, I suppose. Yeah. Um, but she's just amazing at what she does. So mm-hmm. it was, it was a, 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 as you are, it was a,
0: an absolute treat to work with the, the two of you. so yeah. Thank you. So I was conscious as an editor that I didn't want to change too much the style and the tone of your writing that I think makes this piece so great. There was something that came up, you have a really good ear for colloquial language, and it was used really well in parts in the story, but I felt like... Some of it needed to be more consistent because I think on first reading some of the pronouns varied or changed throughout the story. Do you think? You can well,
1: yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you, the, the, and I felt that you know you were you were very like that you really cared about this piece of writing. That's how I felt working with you. Um, but it was it was lovely to to see you kind of pick up on things that I hadn't picked up on in a sharper way like for instance using the pronoun me or my like as in most of the characters uh, throughout the story they say oh me pint me book me child me this me that um, and and Tom uh, said me in, in certain instances like uh, in in the first draft, for instance, he said he said uh, the show the soles of my shoes stick to the floor and announce my arrival to the patrons and the publican. And then further down, he said better myself, you know. And I remember you saying to me, you know, you have to be consistent at least with him. Uh, and and I thought that this like tiny pronoun being consistent and him not saying me but saying my all the time showed that he had this appetite to elevate himself and mm-hmm. that he you know he wanted to sound educated he wanted to sound like he was you know that perhaps you know this dream of becoming a pro- professor he could be realized by these little tiny little changes he was making in his life of how to speak how to be you know around others um so i thought that even though it was a tiny little thing mm-hmm. it made such a huge difference to the story yeah
0: Because also with some inconsistencies in the language, I also felt there were some inconsistencies with the characters. Um, Maybe the thoughts they had didn't necessarily fit with the way the characters were portrayed in the story. Yeah, no, I think you're right.
1: And and, um, I I think that sometimes it's, you know, you're trying to write from the... Point of view of a teenage boy, Um, and when you're an adult woman, you know that that sometimes you kind of forget yourself as you're writing. Like the piece, I remember um, one comment you sent me when in the first draft, when uh, Tom leaves the room where his father has just been um, hitting him and goes up the stairs. uh, His little brother is sitting on the um, uh, on the on the bed, crying. and, you know, he's, he's very upset. He thinks it's his fault uh, that his dad is, is abusing his brother. Um, and in order to soothe him, Tom says to him, said to him, uh, "Dow was just looking for a way to get rid of his anger. He would have found an excuse to hit me whether you said you wanted to be a plumber or an astronaut. And I remember you writing this comment. You said, um, get rid of his anger. Seems uh, quite a modern day pop psychology reference that doesn't quite fit with his time, mm-hmm. which is absolutely true. You know, because mm-hmm. I realised oh gosh, like I'm, I'm writing like he's just come up the stairs, he's come to terms with it, and he's ready to analyse it yeah. to his little brother. You know, there was no... He's kind of like coming out of the story yeah. a little bit. Um, so I was very thankful that you were able to pick up on these things and, and, you know, tell me and then I could go off and... Because it needs more immediacy. Like, yeah. you know, a, a teenage boy that's been abused living in a home that you know that is so uh, i mean even the mother you can see the way she talks like she's you know everyone's been tormented by mm-hmm. this by this their, by their father so uh, can you read the final version of that particular uh, passage yeah i mean it, it, it's he just says joe listen i say Dao was just looking for an excuse done you mm-hmm. know and it's and it's just so simple yeah. and we all know what he means mm-hmm. but yet it's We understand that this poor boy, you know, it's going to take him years Mm -hmm. to work
0: through this. And again, like we were saying, how in the story he's really trying to better himself in terms of his education. But actually, he's still quite emotionally undeveloped. So he isn't able to express these feelings he has for his father. Of course.
1: And he's living in a house where everyone's emotionally underdeveloped. Mm -hmm. You know, like it's. Yeah. So, of course, you know, how would he? How else would he? You know, uh, so the shorter basically it is, the more real
0: it is. Mm -hmm. There's a particular passage I want to talk about. Uh, We had a few edits that went backwards and forwards. Mm -hmm. Where the story, where the father is such a focus of the story and he's this violent character and terrible to everyone in his family, Mm -hmm. I felt there needed to be some elements of... The violence that he's inflicting on his family, in order for us to empathise with the characters, um, um, how how did you feel getting well, that? Well, I think you're being extremely nice, uh, <laughs> first of all,
1: uh, in the way you're putting it, very uh, very politely. Um, I mean, the violence just wasn't there, period. Because mm-hmm. um, I was, uh, I I was just. It, probably in the in the same way that people are worried about writing about sex because it's mm-hmm. quite a physical thing obviously uh, i was worried about writing the violence because it is quite a physical thing mm-hmm. so i just thought oh what if what if people are reading it and they think i'm you know making a meal out of this or i don't, or or worse i don't do it the right way and it has no impact whatsoever so the father was swearing and you know there was like we kind of knew that something was going on but not quite and there, therefore when we were getting to the end of the story, the end of the story didn't make any sense mm-hmm. because we hadn't seen the the, the, the father in all his terrible, violent majesty, mm-hmm. do you know. Um, so I remember you just saying to me, you know, would you just go off and write it now? Yeah. Um, and, you know, we'll just pull it back if mm-hmm. it's too much or we'll write we'll more, you know, like,
0: so it's just do it, yeah. basically. Do you think you could read the passage before the edits and then read it, the version that's in the book, so we can compare? Yeah, of course. Um, So the first draft uh, goes as follows
1: A fucking nobody. A fucking nobody. That's who you are. Fucking nobody, he says. He keeps repeating that same sentence over and over. Boring bastard. I get hit and shoved and pushed, but I don't speak. I don't make a sound. I know there will come a point when it stops like it always does and then there will be a time in the future when it starts again like it always does.
0: So you allude to some violence in that original passage but I felt like you weren't necessarily getting to like the real kind of emotional and physical pain that I felt would have made more impact in the story. Yeah I I absolutely agree and I think... You know, like, like
1: I said, uh, you just have to go ahead and, and, and do it and <laughs> unleash the writing and, and then, you know, pull it right back, you know, if you need to, mm-hmm. uh, which you really helped me do. So um, I can read the final version if yeah, you want now. Yeah, thank you. Um, So this, here we go. A fucking nobody, that's who you are. Fucking nobody, he says. He keeps repeating himself, the boring bastard. I get hit and shoved and punched, but I don't make a sound. The belt burns the skin on my back. His right fist thuds onto my jaw and the pain spreads all the way to the other side of my face and the top of my head. The lashes of the belt get more and more frequent until I'm numb and they don't burn anymore. I know there will come a point when it stops, like it always does, and then there will be a time in the future when it starts again, like it always does.
0: So I think the violence in this passage now it really does kind of demonstrate the arc of the story but also it makes the uh, ending have so much more impact as well and kind of makes it have more sense. Um, yeah well I think I mean it's, it's it's there you know
1: it's not being shy it's not you know we, we have we're in the room there with him and we see what he goes through probably on a daily basis you know and and, the, and suddenly we, we have a lot more empathy for who he becomes.
0: Finally, I'd like to talk about the element of compromise that comes uh, in the editorial process. There was something that I think I flagged in an early discussion we had about your repetition of the word nobody throughout the story. I think I flagged it early as a kind of a something that needs to be tweaked. Maybe you can find different words, but actually there's a reason why you're using that word. And until we had that discussion, um, I really wasn't aware of it. So Would you like to talk about yeah, sure, sure. Um, well,
1: uh, first of all, as you know, I'm half Greek. Um, so I was keen to, in this very, very Irish story, put an element of my Greekness in there. Um, the The repetition of nobody is a reference to the Odyssey. Um, when Odysseus winds up on the island of the Cyclops Polyphemus, um, he tells him that his name is nobody. So when he ends up um, blinding the Cyclops before leaving the island... Um, and then the Cyclops gets asked who did this to him uh, the Cyclops says nobody did mm-hmm. in the same way that when Tom is having the cigarette in the laneway mm-hmm. imagining that his father you know, is going to be standing at the pearly gates and they'll ask him who did this to him mm-hmm. and he will say nobody did so mm-hmm. that was my You know, uh, for me, the father is the cyclops, the Mm -hmm. scary giant living in the house, you know. And and there's also references to his size versus Tom's size. You know, Tom's supposed to take after his mother
0: and be quite small. And, you know, his father obviously is this man that just towers over him. Mm -hmm. Um, Because currently you're working on a collection of short stories uh, set in contemporary Athens, as yes, well. yes, it's it's uh, they're set in 2015
1: in the in the Greek spring, uh, at, at the height of the austerity, uh, when, um, as Professor Varoufakis put it, um, there was fiscal waterboarding mm-hmm. going on, you know, and, and uh, it shows it's kind of shows like the melting pot that is Athens, um, illustrates, you know, that the poverty that existed alongside. Uh, the tremendously rich, you know, shipping mm-hmm. magnates that, that, mm-hmm. uh, that reside. In Can office. you
0: see comparisons between the island you're depicting in your story and the Greece you're depicting in your current uh, short stories that you're working on?
1: Well, I mean... I- being half and half, uh, I don't know. You're just you. You reach a point where you just you just decide that that's what you are. Mm-hmm. You're 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 a half and half. You're not a whole thing, you know. Mm-hmm. And all the time when I'm writing these stories about Greece now, you know, I've been reading a lot of Joyce. Um, I've been li- I've been reading Dubliners quite a lot, and that's influenced me in my writing of these stories. Mm-hmm. And likewise, when making up the story about this boy, you know, I, I, I dreamt of him dreaming of being in Greece, like, you know, going off on a voyage, you know, mm-hmm. in, a, in, a, in a, you know, little wooden ship, you mm-hmm. know, and uh,
0: um, getting away from this horrible road in Dublin where he lives. Thank you so much for talking to us today, Aaron Deer. Do you have a short story recommendation? Yes. Um, James Joyce's Araby, um,
1: from the book of short stories Dubliners um, and first of all because it just sounds so wonderful Araby I mean do you not just mm-hmm. want to read it now um, and, uh, and uh, it's, it's about a boy uh, who fancies this girl he doesn't talk to actually and he wants to go off to the fair to buy her a trinket and James Joyce manages to make the quotidian magical and that's just
0: that sounds brilliant thank you for sharing that with us And thank you again for talking to us and reading from your story. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. To buy a copy of Mechanics Institute Review 15, go to mironline.org forward slash anthology. The Mechanics Institute Review Anthology was made possible with funding from the Arts Council. If you want to find out more about the Mechanics Institute Review, follow us on Twitter at mironlinebbk. And thank you for listening.